Welcome to the People in the Red Vest, a podcast of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the IFRC. I'm your host, Alexandra Sasha Gorishak, and in each episode, we feature inspiring, surprising, and thought-provoking conversations with people who dedicate their lives to helping others. In this episode, I speak to Alexander Matthew, the Regional Director for IFRC's Asia-Pacific region, a vast and diverse part of the world that is home to some of the largest and enduring humanitarian crises. He talks about the factors that fuel the region's multitude of overlapping emergencies, the issues that have fallen off the media radar, and the growing role the region is playing in international humanitarian action and innovation. You shouldn't and couldn't describe Asia-Pacific only in terms of its risks. That wouldn't do it justice. It's rich and diverse. Its history is incredible. It's colorful, beautiful, innovative, dynamic. But it contains a number of quite significant risks for the people who live there. My guest today is Alexander Matthew, IFRC's Regional Director for the Asia-Pacific region. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Asia-Pacific is a region that spans almost a quarter of the globe, from Afghanistan to New Zealand. Can you tell us what your role involves and what it's like managing and coordinating IFRC operations in such a diverse and vast geographic region? Well, essentially, it means coordinating the largest humanitarian network in Asia-Pacific and enabling it to respond to all types of crises, small, medium or large, and to try to keep the members of that network connected so that they are supporting each other and learning from each other. It is, as you say, fast and diverse as a region. Therefore, it requires teamwork and decentralization to make that work. Fortunately, we have 14 excellent heads of delegations spread across the Asia-Pacific region. And that team supports 38 national societies to respond to those crises. We sometimes refer to the region as disaster-prone. It's an unfortunate choice of words, I'm sure, (laughs) perhaps to describe a region that's not only particularly vulnerable to climate-related events, but also its share of volcanoes and earthquakes and such. They often happen on top of ongoing conflicts, migrations, that put people in very vulnerable situations. What do you think of that description? Is it accurate? How would you describe the particular dynamics of disasters and humanitarian emergencies in the region? Well, you, could, you shouldn't and couldn't describe Asia-Pacific only in terms of its risks. That wouldn't do it justice. It's rich and diverse. Its history is incredible. It's colorful, beautiful, innovative, dynamic. But it contains a number of quite significant risks for the people who live there. If you are living on in Bengal, for example, in Bangladesh, then in the Bengal Basin in Bangladesh, then you are living in a high-risk area. The Pacific Basin has a ring of fire, a series of volcanic mountains. So throughout its history, Asia-Pacific has faced numerous disasters of flooding and earthquakes and droughts. And that is no exception now. In fact, it's accelerated in terms of risk because of climate change. 
and because of the density of the population means more people are affected every time something happens. So Asia Pacific is a disaster prone part of the world. It's also the part of the world that has innovated on disaster preparedness, risk mitigation, and some of the great historic risks that have been faced in Asia Pacific in the past. For example, the flooding in China, which has shaped the history of China, is significantly less of a risk today because of successful investment and mitigation. In Bangladesh, flooding in the past that caused by cyclones would have taken and did take thousands upon thousands of lives. That is much rarer now because of the investment in early warning, early action and mitigation. So you can describe it in terms of risk or you can describe it in terms of how far it has gone in terms of preparedness, which is possible for flooding, a little less so for some of the earthquake risks in some parts of the region. Speaking of uh, earthquakes, we just had a series of earthquakes in Afghanistan, which is also reeling from other protracted emergencies happening in that country. The situation is really, really bad. And with so many other things going on at the same time around the world, it's kind of fallen off the radar. What are your thoughts about that? Well, Afghanistan has been on and off the radar for decades now. And you know, it, it has a complicated history as a country, but probably modern history starts with the Soviet invasion in the 1980s. And since then, it has been, a, it has been cycles of conflict that, has had a, that have cumulatively had a very significant effect on the country. That has been exacerbated by frequent droughts, underinvestment, lack of access to health care, limited access to education, and the fact that the country itself has been basically abused for proxy wars now for decades, sometimes with periods of intense interest and investment, often in the form of weapons, and then the powers leave, the weapons stay, and the country has fallen into civil war and violence. And it is one of the most tragic parts of the world in that respect. If you go there, of course, you see something else, which is also pride, dignity, the beauty of nature, the pride in their own history, you know, the, the courage of individuals to cope with incredible hardship. And the country survives because people help each other. They... Families not only support each other, they support larger families and neighbours and extended families. And that's how the country copes with its disasters and poverty and conflict. So you leave there not feeling only pity at all. You feel admiration and affection for the, the people that you meet. It shouldn't be forgotten because, well, one out of simple compassion for a country that endures a lot in terms of natural disaster, poverty and struggles to enjoy the basics of what are enjoyed in many other parts of the world, including even the neighboring countries. But also many parts of the world are, are complicit in why the country has struggled to develop um, uh, in the way that many other countries, most other countries in Asia Pacific have. And if you're just interested for selfish reasons, you know, uh, uh, an insecure Afghanistan is, is not good for the neighborhood or the wider world. But the most compelling reason for us is that there is great vulnerability there, um, some of the most acute vulnerability in the world. And it is our calling in the International Red Cross and Red Crescent movement to respond to that as well as we can. What has it meant in your view, the fact that IFRC was able to stay there 
after many other organizations left. What are some of the questions around whether or not we will still continue to be able to stay there and help? Well, we have no doubt at all in our commitment to stay. Some agencies did leave in August 2021, uh, either because of security concerns or they felt that, yeah, largely because of security concerns or they felt their funding supply would inevitably be cut once the changes happened. For us, there was no real question of leaving. We worked through a national organization, the Afghan Red Crescent. Anyway, they would have stayed and it wouldn't have felt good for us to leave while they were staying. Um, sometimes you have to leave if you've got a direct threat, but we felt it was possible to stay. And once the change happened, we were given sufficient security assurances that we could stay. The world was very divided on the morality of staying, should you stay or should you not. And the international community was roughly divided between those that said, we have to be pragmatic, the change has happened. It may not have been desirable. There may be conflicts in values that we will inevitably face as we enter the new diplomacy with new, with new authorities. But it's better to stay and engage than to leave, particularly if leaving means abandoning the country and the people themselves that really require international support and assistance. And there was another side to that argument, which was it is by leaving and withholding finances that you can apply pressure on human rights and ultimately serve the people of Afghanistan better. The international community was divided on that, which is why some embassies, embassies stayed, some embassies left. But our solidarity was with the people of Afghanistan, particularly the people in crisis. So for us, leaving was really not an option we wanted to consider. As you know, uh, recently on this podcast, we spoke to Homa Nader, who works on partnerships um, to help our response in Afghanistan. And she talked particularly about the challenges facing women and children in Afghanistan. What is IFRC doing to improve that particular situation? The situation for women in Afghanistan is amongst the hardest in the world particularly those who lived, who live in cities and could enjoy other rights up until recently, most importantly, access to education and work. That wasn't true of the entire country, but it was certainly true of urban areas and certainly true of the capital in Kabul. And our primary strategy in Afghanistan when it comes to women is to include them in both the provision of services and the, re the receipt of services particularly targeting uh, widow-headed households, destitute women and women in need of health care, including maternal child care. Uh, we have been able, with our part, with, through Afghan Red Crescent, to maintain female staff within the health services. So they continue to deliver just as they did before. And we are uh, prioritizing investment for destitute women in the form of shelters, which not only help people who would otherwise perhaps be on the street, but also it provides women with vocational training and hopefully a capacity for them to economically regenerate and then uh, with enough money to go back and rebuild uh, their lives. The scale is not sufficient to the need, for sure, uh, and it's something I hope we can expand to a great degree in the years to come. But it is absolutely front, front and centre of our strategy for Afghanistan. We also are able uh, within the IFRC and with the Afghan Red Crescent to continue to have women on staff who are part of supporting these services. So 
both as an employer and a service provider, uh, the situation with women is at yeah, front and center of what we do. As you just said, Afghanistan is perhaps a really good example of why gender inclusion is so important. But the issue is not just in Afghanistan. What's your understanding or reading of the situation of gender inclusion across the Asia-Pacific region? Well, if you just take the example of the Red Cross, Red Crescent family, it's mixed, to be honest. If you look at the youth, it's okay. If you take photographs of governing boards or if you put the leaders of Red Cross and Red Crescent societies together in one room and take a photograph, you are going to spot quite quickly that there is not a good gender balance. In South Asia, we have seven societies, one female leader. In East Asia, also one. Uh, So in Southeast Asia, two. So it's not good. That is going to take time to change, but we have got a number of initiatives to try to address it. So we have a women, we have women leadership initiative in in Asia Pacific, which is designed to try and create mentoring, coaching, training opportunities for middle women in middle management, so they are able able to be promoted and take on leadership positions both in management and in governance. We also continue to advocate with our membership to have report have. Uh, gender balance representation at governing board events, at statutory meetings and so forth. Within programs, which is uh, a different angle of this, uh, protection, gender inclusion are critical parts of our targeting, the services we provide and the feedback mechanisms that we have. But yeah, particularly around the leadership, we're not where we should be at all. But I would say in the IFRC, at least, we have made a great deal of effort to address that and 50% of our heads of delegation are women, and that is also uh, sending a signal to our membership about what we can do if we are yeah, intentional about this. Another massive and ongoing crisis is the situation of the people who are forced to flee violence in Myanmar. And they're now living in Bangladesh, largely in an area known as Cog's Bazaar, but not only, of course. And Cog's Bazaar quickly became a massive settlement with an equally massive humanitarian presence. And again... This crisis that once dominated the news cycle also appears to have fallen off the radar a little bit. What's going on there now? Well, you can look at this in a positive or a negative lens. On the positive lens, from a humanitarian perspective, once they crossed the border in 2017, very few people died after that. Now, had that happened at any other point in history, probably a great percentage of them would have died either from violence or other diseases or even from hunger. But the government of Bangladesh, even though it was not a signatory to the Refugee Convention, it did allow people to have safe haven. And the international community mobilized quite quickly to provide the basics of shelter, water, food, etc. That enabled people at least to survive. What it hasn't enabled people to do on the negative side is to thrive. Uh, because the intention has always been that they do not stay beyond the immediate needs of protection and then they should go home. And therefore, development, permanent shelter, 
education, recreational activities, livelihoods, integration, all of those things are not options for, for us to pursue. Now, on top of that, six years into it, you have a declining interest, declining world attention, and, and funding diversion to many other more prominent crises around the world that are in the headlines, which means that the same number of people are in Cox's Bazaar, the same services are required, but there is less money to do it. The consequence of that, the long stay, the impatience of it, the lack of development opportunities, the reduced quality of services because of reduced financing means that people are angry, bored, working in an illegal economy, more likely to take high-risk migration options. There are real protection uh, issues, particularly around for women and children, but not exclusively for women and children. It's becoming more and more violent, full stop. That's not good for Bangladesh. It's definitely not good for the Rohingya themselves. It won't be good for Myanmar if one day they do go home. So ultimately, there is a strong case for a more developmental approach to support the people living in the camps of Cox's Bazaar, looking at education, development, recreation, dignity generally. But we are still in the process of having those sensitive conversations with the various stakeholders, because politically it's not a popular perspective. Can you explain a little bit the community engagement and accountability that we've been engaged in in Cox Bazaar? Well, the main incentive for the community, community engagement and accountability mechanisms is to give people living in Cox's Bazaar a chance to feed back on the quality of the services they are receiving, other things that we may not have considered, vulnerabilities or concerns they have that they need humanitarian organizations or the authorities to respond to, and for us to have a feedback loop to show that, yes, we have heard you and this is what we have done about it. That is now... We intend to mainstream that into all of our programs and make it a critical part of disaster response on service provision generally. I hope one day it goes beyond that, because ideally it's not just about course correction of services. It is about shifting power. It is about enabling receivers of services to decide who they want to receive services from, uh, to publicly feedback on the quality of what they have received so that donors have a chance to understand who is really doing what they've promised to do, and to make sure that, yes, that they that the control and power is not with the, those that have the money and provide the services, but it's there for the people who are receiving those services and for whom the money has been raised in the first place. We are not there yet. We're not even close, actually. I know that there's, you know, people joked, well, not joked about, they speculated that we might see a humanitarian trip advisor one day where the people receiving the services can do all the rating and that that's what you would look at when you're deciding who to give money to and which service provider to support. Whether it will be exactly like that or something similar, I'm not sure, but that's where it would be great if we got to. What about Myanmar? What's going on there? What are the challenges and what are our operations like there now? Well, Myanmar has gone through a big change uh, since the military took over in 2021. Uh, in some ways, many of the vulnerabilities in Myanmar are familiar to those who've known the country for a long time and for those who, who have lived there. The country has experienced conflict around its border areas and within different parts of the country for decades now. But all of that has been intensified over the last two years. More parts of the country are experiencing 
violence. That means more people are being displaced and there is violence in parts of the country where there wasn't three years ago. So it's generally become uh, more insecure, more isolated from the international community. And now you're looking at around 14, 15 million people in need of humanitarian assistance and around 1.5 million people who have been displaced. For us, it means that we have greater needs to serve, but there are increasing difficulties when it comes to accessing those people in need. The Myanmar Red Cross has played a critical role in the provision of health services and the delivery of assistance, but like all parts of the humanitarian system, it can't get to all the places that it needs to. It's also one, one of those parts of the world that is particularly challenged around the concept of neutrality and the concept of having a partner like ours, which is an auxiliary to its public authorities. Because if you are in a part of Myanmar that does not accept that those authorities are legitimate, you're probably not also going to accept the auxiliary to those authorities, even if they are committed to be principled in the way that they deliver services, which the Myanmar Red Cross try to be. Nevertheless, it presents a huge perception challenge and a challenge, therefore, for our model of operating, where we work through a single organization that is, yeah, that is an auxiliary. So the result of that is that within some parts of the country, we are able to provide services in others we are not, but that is not unique to us. What it generally means, what that broadly means for the people in crisis in Myanmar is that there are large numbers who get no assistance at all. There is no agency able to serve everybody. You can only really operate in those parts of the country where you have acceptance, which means you need multiple agencies with different acceptance in different parts of the country in order to deliver those services. And we are one of those actors with the ability to operate in those parts of the country which, where we are accepted, which is more than most others, but it's not enough to cover the entire, uh, entire country. What else should the world be paying attention to in the region that we're not something that the media don't care about or that the world doesn't know about simply? Well, we have the big crises, which are sometimes in the news, because they affect very large numbers of people. Behind that, you have constant climate disasters that are, right now are never stopping. So these are mostly around cyclones and flooding. Uh, they can be around heat waves as well. They always happened, but because of increased rainfall, which is probably a result of climate change, they are happening now more frequently. And because of population growth, they are affecting more people when they do happen. They're happening so frequently and they're happening off the headlines now because so many other crises are in the headlines. It means that you can no longer mobilize the sort of empathy, compassion and support that you would have 10 years ago. So crises that would have been headline news 10, 15 years ago would have mobilized millions from the international community. Now, do not reach the news at all and certainly don't generate international support, apart from maybe a little bit from uh, a few neighboring countries showing solidarity, which means our approach has to be very different now to cope with constant crises off the headlines. And there are two things we need to do to make sure we're able to do that. The first, every country needs a strong Red Cross or Red Crescent that's able to be the first community-based responder to disaster, small, medium or large. And you do need a flexible funding mechanism that can be released very, very quickly that doesn't require an appeal 
global solidarity, headline news, etc., which is why our disaster relief and emergency fund is so important. So we need strategies that are that enable us to cope with crises off the headlines, as well as the ones that are in the news. Moving on to a more positive aspect of Asia-Pacific, the region has for some time been a growing center of economic, political, cultural power. It's more influential globally than ever before, one could say. And um, in, I don't know, trading markets, art, music, film industry, and humanitarianism and development is no exception. What do you see? What do you see as, a, as the potential for Asia-Pacific in terms of leading the way the next generation handles the big humanitarian issues? What are some examples, perhaps, of innovative Asian humanitarian response that you find interesting or inspiring? Yeah, it's a good question. Certainly something we need to keep uh, an eye on because they are increasingly supporting well, one each other, the mutual aid and contributing to crises around the world. You still have a humanitarian system that's primarily financed by the same traditional donors from Europe and North America, but it's shifting and it probably will shift more. And one of the big questions we are all going to face is, will will this current system as we understand, as we are familiar with, just remain financially supported by the same group of donors and something else will happen funded by Asia Pacific and the Middle East? Or will Asia-Pacific, the Middle East, con contribute to the same multilateral system and just make it more global? And there are big consequences of which way that goes. China has a different approach to what development uh, is for and what values need to drive it and what good looks like. And that will challenge the way that development aid is financed by by the Western um, Western countries. One is more driven by civil rights. Uh, one is more driven by economic development with minimum interference in political issues or rights-based issues. And they're not clashing in, in any violent way, but they are clashing as value systems and drivers of why, you, why countries are supported in their development agenda. On the humanitarian side, it's a little bit easier because needs-based giving is a little less controversial. But because even the humanitarian system is also rights-driven to some degree, there will likely be you know, difficult discussions and deliberations about whether there is one agenda we can all support or whether there's going to be some type of breakdown of the system depending on who's giving uh, the money. But it is mobilizing support from, from the countries of Asia-Pacific, both the big obvious ones like China and India, but other ones like Malaysia and Indonesia, that is a critical part of what the IFRC wants to be involved in uh, and is involved in and will continue to be over the coming years. And one small example, we have our Asia-Pacific conference next month. It's a statutory event we run every four years. And this will be the first year that it's funded solely by the Asia-Pacific countries themselves with no contributions from any other part of the world. And we did it deliberately just to show that it can be done. Um, and the, some of the bigger economies gave large contributions, but even the small ones, countries gave 
small contributions, but they owned it together. So that's we can expect more of that. And one of our, I think, the big opportunities of the multilateral system is to make it welcoming and inclusive for a wider set of countries than it uh, that it traditionally has been. One of the trends in general is that the humanitarian sector is becoming more and more diverse. It's still quite northern and western dominated in many ways, but it's becoming more open to people of diverse cultural, religious, educational backgrounds and also women. And Asia is taking a larger and larger role. How do you see it? And and um, if you don't mind, can you share how your work with that as a leader in Asia Pacific, who is himself a white male of European descent, how do you address it and promote a culture of inclusion in your, in your own role? Well, I think you have to start by maybe challenging the premise of the question because the, the humanitarian system in Asia Pacific is led by national Asia and Pacific institutions who have partial dependence or interdependence with international financing, but are often largely financed through their own fundraising and partnerships and government support. If you were to talk to them about localization or you know, over-dependence on Western financing, they would just raise an eyebrow and wonder what you're talking about, many of them. So those are conversations that we have here. You have them in London, you have them in Washington, you have them in Geneva. But you don't necessarily have the same conversations over there. Now, there are some institutions that have been you know, originated by Western organizations and continue to be dependent and maybe they are breaking away and some of those some of those conversations are extremely pertinent. But if you look at the Red Cross and Red Crescent societies, they're largely strong, financially independent institutions who partner with international institutions as equals based on what they strategically useful to them. And they can accept that or they can walk away from it based on what they need most. They are their governing boards are all from the that country uh, and they are yeah, not dependent on us. So when I walk into those meetings, you know, there is a certain colonial legacy that my accent and um, yeah, my origins may bring, but they are not dependent on it. And therefore that is definitely a conversation, you know, a conversation with, with mutual independence on, 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 on both sides. In the way that I lead, I am very, still aware of it because the uh, there is how I got into the job and perhaps some of the skill sets and biases that resulted in promotions may well have had some origins in in the, in the biases that you refer to so I'm very deliberate about who I recruit how how I recruit what opportunities I give to make sure that people from within Asia Pacific or just yeah, women or, or or people from different ethnic back, backgrounds around the world have the have that first opportunity to lead, because like most people who've been promoted and have been given leadership opportunities, at one point in your life, someone's believed in you, and someone's given you that first promotion or that first opportunity that you're not really ready for, but they think with a bit of support, a bit of leap of faith, you'll somehow rise to that challenge. 
I've been blessed with leaders who have seen that in me and I always look for it in others now. But I also look for it from a lens of where they're coming from, what opportunities they may or may not have, what biases they may be facing and just trying to overcome that by creating opportunities. And we've got some great leaders amongst the heads of delegations in Asia Pacific now and yeah, very proud of them. And, and it is a very diverse group. You've always been good at presenting provocative ideas and raising questions in meetings, in op-eds. What are you thinking about these days? What issues or concerns are getting under your skin or exciting you that we should be paying more attention to? When I was based in London in my previous job, I mean, I've worked all around the world, but my previous job before I came here was based in London. I tended to think in terms of system reform because that's, you look at the big picture from there and you look at the way the system is working or not working and how it needs to be corrected to deliver more. Where I'm sitting now in Asia Pacific, I frankly think about that less. I think much more about specific contexts. So if I were to sit down and write an op-ed today, it would much more likely be about Afghanistan and what's going well and less well in, in terms of international humanitarian investment and why the short-term strategy we are currently adopting is failing the people of Afghanistan. I might write more about what we discussed about Bangladesh and why, even though it's politically unpopular, you need to have longer-term development strategies for the people that live there, otherwise the situation will just be worse for everybody in terms of security and hopelessness. Right now, today, it's hard not to think about the challenges facing the concept of neutrality for humanitarian organizations. That was very clear uh, around Ukraine last year. And it's very clear right now in around Israel-Gaza that if you're not taking sides, you're being attacked for not taking sides. And therefore, trying to keep your head down in order to secure as an absolute priority access by aggravating neither side so you can continue to deliver services for the sake of the people who need them is not a popular concept. Even though you can probably add nothing to the general condemnation and anger by throwing another voice in there because there are plenty of other voices speaking, nevertheless the concept is still challenged. So I think right now that is definitely worthy of reflection for humanitarian organizations. Is it still moral to be neutral and how if you believe it is still moral to be neutral, because there is a niche responsibility that comes with for neutral organizations, how do you do it without being condemned for maintaining that principle, which is definitely worthy of reflection at the moment. I'm looking forward to that op-ed whenever you write it. You said you've worked all around the world, uh, but your last uh, posting was in, in London. Can you tell us a little bit about your professional background and what brought you to this field? Well, I didn't know what I was going to do when I graduated. I just knew I wanted it to be somehow connected to world events, useful. I couldn't define it very well. And I wanted to involve adventure and exploration and seeing the world. And I started not in the Red Cross. I actually started in starting, um, I, I started a small business just outside Moscow when the Soviet Union collapsed. Then I worked in Central Asia. Um, I, uh, I applied for a job in the Red Cross because they wanted someone who could speak Russian for the Central Asia file. And I covered Afghanistan and Central Asia, but I didn't know I was going to fall in love with it 
to the extent that I did. It just seemed very aligned with my values. Uh, and I entered it sort of with curiosity, but with very, very little knowledge. In hindsight, I don't understand how I even got that first job because I can't have made any sense when they asked me all about the ICRC and the IFRC and the movement because I knew nothing. But I did fall in love with it very quickly. And I fell in love particularly, even though my first job was with the British Red Cross, uh, I fell in love with the IFRC. I, w I, w I came to Geneva. I went to see the ICRC, who, as always, were very, very impressive, very Swiss in those days. Great context analysis, yeah, slightly arrogant, but I'm sure they won't mind me saying it because, you know, they were good at their jobs and they were cool people and they described the context well. But it was very monocultured, um, very well organized and very monocultured. And then I went to the IFRC, you know, the canteen full of people from Africa, from Asia, from the Americas, from Europe, a Babylon of languages being spoken over the, over the dinner table, chaotic, my agenda was a mess. But it, it was the world as it is, you know, with all its complexity and disagreements and uh, you know, incompatible values clashing, uh, different cultures trying to understand each other. You know, it was and is the world that it is imperfect, messy, uh, frustrating, hard to negotiate, uh, but it's real. Many other international humanitarian organizations, even when they localize and even when they create subsidiaries around the world, essentially they are creating sort of mini-me's. They just replicate what they built in the UK or somewhere else and they put it in India or, or, or any other part of the world. Um, but, you know, ours is different. Our National societies were born of their cultures, yes, with some universal principles that they stuck to, but they are governed by themselves, staffed by themselves, and mirror the cultures that they were born in for better and worse. But that is the world as it is. And when there was a general assembly here and 192, 191 countries get together, countries that may be fighting, disagreeing with each other, have a history of either no communication or hostile communication, and they still get into one room and agree that they're going to work towards the same fundamental principles. It means something. It's a spark of hope in an otherwise pretty stressed and, and, and difficult world. One of the great uh, paradoxes of our work is that we're exposed to the worst and the best of things and of people. We see the suffering caused by conflict, natural disaster, human folly, but we also see the best that the world has to offer in terms of the amazing things people do to help each other. Like you said, the bravery and solidarity they show in the face of danger. I'd like to ask you to reflect and share some of what you've seen and how you balance these two aspects of our reality, of your reality. I mean, it is a great privilege of working in the Red Cross that you do see the diversity of, of, of life. You can spend, and I did literally spend one morning once with sex workers and drug users in Manipur in India and had dinner with the prime minister in Delhi that very same evening you know, the extremity of poverty and then the extremity of, of hospitality and wealth all in the same day in the same country. And I do, in this job, 
you know, I, three weeks ago I was with in villages just outside Herat that had been destroyed by an earthquake 48 hours before and people had nothing. And then 48 hours later, you're in a totally different environment sitting with the leader of a country talking about a humanitarian issue or need. So it bridges uh, both worlds. I, you know, I... I suppose have become convinced over the years that we are not helpless in the face of crises and that even a desperate situation actually has has dignity and hope in it if the if the type of conversations and support you provide uh, are are enabling one of the formative experiences for me was some time ago in 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 Georgia where there were lots of people that were displaced because of the war in Abkhazia and they'd come, they'd come into Western Georgia, mostly elderly people, and they had become extremely vulnerable, bordering destitute. The humanitarian service they got was food. Now, first year, lots of it. Money begins to dwindle. Next year, a bit less. Third year, it's off the news. No one's talking about it. The money's going down. Even less food. Fourth year, fifth year, no one's talking about it. The budget is 30% of the size it was before. And you're having to make very difficult decisions about who stays on the list and who doesn't. And how do you decide? Well, who's most vulnerable? Who looks most hungry? It almost created a perverse incentive to be vulnerable in order to get the food package. Now, what we did when, when I was there was we sort of turned it on its head. Instead of asking who is most vulnerable, we just brought everybody together in a room over lunch and said, what do you think needs to be done? in order to change this, turn this situation around. And suddenly they had a different incentive, not to be vulnerable, but to propose ideas. And then there were no longer the people that we'd met lying in bed with their hands held out. It turned out there were doctors and engineers, uh, civil servants, academics. They just, their past identities had been lost when they were beneficiaries. But in this room, their identities came back. And what they wanted was not endless relief items. They wanted ways to access their entitlements, to speak to decision makers, to speak to each other, to provide moral support to each other. And from that, a series of centers for elderly people were created first in, just in the city of Kutaisi, now all around the country, where people who are isolated and elderly and potentially could fall destitute or dependent on aid actually enter an environment of mutual aid and support where that, can, that vulnerability can be overcome. And it just, it was an important lesson for me to remember that you can feel great pity when you see someone in a hopeless situation, but with a, even a small opportunity, they will turn that into an opportunity to be dignified, to restore their own agency, and they will not want to be dependent on your aid. And that's how we need to approach the responsibility we have, not just through the eyes of charity, but through the opportunities we can provide for people to restore dignity they may have lost. Have there been any particular people who have inspired you throughout your life or now? Or are you reading anything inspiring? Well, I'll answer the latter question first. I mean, I've just finished a, a, a book called Enemies and Neighbors by Ian Black, the history of uh, the relationship between um, Palestinians and uh, Jews and before Israel was formed and then after and it's an important sort of book to read at the moment because it was uh, generally endorsed by both Israeli and Palestinian academics as as fair as you can get and as balanced as you can get account of the last hundred years. It doesn't stop you feeling angry, 
and it shouldn't stop you feeling angry. And it's a long story with lots of legitimate causes to be anger, angry. But it does remind you of the complexity of it. If you, all you're going to do is create an echo chamber in your social media feeds of angry headlines, traumatic images, you're not going to be part of the solution because you're going to be so hateful and so frustrated by what all that feedback loop generates that you're then part of the problem. You think you're part of the solution, but actually you're already part of the problem because you are wanting your point of view and your anger to find some form of satisfaction. If you take the time to read something a bit more nuanced, to understand the details, what the option options for deliberation and future peace and reconciliation may be, as far away as that seems, only in that space can you be useful, especially as an outsider. You know, because otherwise, you're really just contributing to the hatred and the anger and all the other things that will make peace, which must come one day, more difficult to achieve. In terms of your first question, it's probably too big a list to follow because I, you know, I have a 25-year career now. I'm a constant observer of human nature, for, uh, and looking at leaders for their strengths and their weaknesses, trying to learn what I can from anybody around me, from what I'm reading, from what I'm seeing, whether they're my bosses or not my bosses. And the, and the list would be, yeah, the list would be too long. But once, but even this week, even this week, the leadership we have seen, the colleagues I have spent time with, uh, the different perspectives about what's going on in the world and what we can do, excitement about things I've maybe lost a bit of excitement in and seeing it again in the eyes of somebody else, all of that is, is great. Just for the benefit of our readers, IFRC held its... Uh global management meeting this week, and that's what you were referring to. Uh, in closing, I wanted to ask you, the name of this podcast is The People in the Red Vest. What does the red vest mean to you? I remember driving through the villages of uh, Burundi and children running out from their houses shouting, Red Cross, Red Cross, Red Cross. And, you know, I've been in, you know, in, uh, in deep in the deserts around Kandahar, um, in prisons in Siberia, uh, in all parts of Africa. And I have met enthusiastic, compassionate and committed Red Cross and Red Crescent volunteers. And I'm not sure how many other networks in the world have got not only that reach, but that spirit. And so what does it mean for me? It means a connectivity between cultures, connectivity about compassion, about the, the drive to do something positive with your time, the belief that you can contribute meaningfully somehow, even a little bit by giving an hour or two a week, connection between community-based needs and global humanitarian policy and influencing. It means all of those things. A life that's you know, where you can contribute. Thank you, Alexander, for the conversation, for your insights and for allowing us to get to know you and your work a little bit. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to People in the Red Vest, a podcast of inspiring stories as told by people from the IFRC. 
This podcast was produced by Malcolm Lucard and me, Alexandra Sasha Gorishek, with production and engineering support from Damien Naylor. Promotion and marketing by Maxime Bouchard and Melis Vigan Meshe. Graphic design by Valentina Shapiro and web support from Chris Aqua and Patrick Tai. For more inspiring stories, subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts.